Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I am chatting with Rob Wingritsky and Chris O'Loughlin, who are two anaesthetists from Frankston Hospital here in Melbourne. We are chatting about the Clean Space PAPR, the Powered Air Purifying Respirator. This episode is not so much about the unit itself, so I'm going to put a link to their website in the show notes. What we do talk about is how Rob and Chris introduced the Clean Space Halo into their workplace. Because it's not just about buying a mask and putting it on your face. This is a piece of technology, and like any technology, there is a learning curve. What Rob and Chris have managed to accomplish is the introduction of the Clean Space Halo into their operating theatres from woe to go within three weeks, which I think has broken the land speed record for implementation of a new piece of technology. They've developed a whole stack of resources. They've got a clinical practice guideline, which has been shared with ASA members on the ASA forum. I'll put the link for that also in the show notes. And they've also produced some really excellent training videos, including, I think, a really good example of a PPE buddy to help with doffing. If you're interested in those videos, I'll share details for how to get them with you at the end of the podcast. All right. Hope you enjoy listening. We are here to talk about the, not just Pappas in general, but the Clean Space Halo, because I think you guys have broken the land speed record for getting it up and going in your department. I've had a lot of queries from people about not just the clean space halo, but about reusable masks in general. And I'm hearing that there's a lot of barriers to their implementation. And a lot of people are asking how to solve some of these problems. So I wanted to chat with you about how you got it done. How did you break this land speed record? Essentially, we've been using it almost every day now for about a month in our COVID theatre. We aren't necessarily doing that on all COVID patients. What we're trying to do is to to keep staff trained and in particular to get um, staff that have had the training but haven't had a chance to use the device in a clinical setting. We're pulling cases off the emergency theatre list that are relatively straightforward and COVID negative um, to do in that environment. So everyone gets a chance to practice with the device and everyone gets a chance to, uh, more importantly, practice with the device with the full PPE. So we, we get everyone to treat it like a real case. We're having um, you know, our clean room with communication devices all set up and we're telling people in the clean room, you know, treat it like a real case so they won't enter the room to pass off drugs or, or whatever the task that they need to do might be. Of course, with the caveat that if something goes wrong and it's an emergency situation, the trial period ends and we revert back to normal and we can bring in crash carts and all that sort of stuff. Um, which we have separate processes for if it's an actual COVID patient. Um, but it has helped train staff and get their confidence levels up. Um, but also it has helped us to figure out any deficiencies in our systems and processes. Um, and it's led to a number of little innovations that we've implemented into our COVID theatre, um, specifically to help with various issues that have come across in these scenarios. When you're doing the, the practices in the COVID theatre, which I think is a great idea, are you, you're doing the full PPE, all the processes. Are you also doing the theatre rest time in between cases or are you not doing that because you're going, okay, well, that was a COVID negative patient, but this was actually for training purposes? Essentially because we're at the moment, we're only doing one training case a day. The theatre gets rested as a byproduct of that. We haven't really had the scenario where we've had multiple cases back to back, whether that be COVID or SCOVID or training I would have thought if, if we're doing 
cases as a halo exercise in a theatre where there are where there is a whole list booked or where there are more emergency cases to follow that we would just revert back to following our normal processes and whatever guidelines we were following at the time and we wouldn't change those sorts of things that affect the logistical management of theatre we wouldn't necessarily change them for the sake of running halo exercises unless we're not recovering the patient in theatre like we would be if they were a COVID positive patient. The, the anaesthetic team take the patient to theatre with their um, with all their PPE still on and then they go through the normal one-by-one doffing process that we've designed for the halos. So there's a few differences that when we're doing these halo cold cases that we've a few concessions we've made obviously to just to, to help things run a bit more smoothly that's a great term for it a halo cold case i think everyone gets that how did you choose who would do it have you trained up all the anesthetists for example or have you identified a subset who will be the covid anesthetists and the covid surgeons and the covid nurses um, so initially our processes were, we had to think about who was spending the most time in that theatre to prioritise those people because we were in a situation where, as you say, we'd, we'd had a little outbreak and we were um, actively using our COVID theatre. Um, so we had an idea of, you know, which surgical craft groups, for example, spent the most time in there. Um, and we had an idea of which anaesthetists were being rostered on to that theatre it's fairly equal distribution, but there are some people that have just by nature of, you know, rostering been in there a bit more than others. Um, we had a split of 10% anaesthetists, uh, 10% theatre techs, about 45% nursing staff and the rest surgeons in our initial training group. And that allowed us to have a good split between anaesthetic nursing staff, scrub team staff, um, and then enough surgical staff um, and an anaesthetist train that we could hit the ground running if we did have actual COVID cases that needed to be done. And then essentially we just kept adding to training every week. Um, and we're now in a process where we've stepped away from the clean space training program. So they, they run a training program initially alongside what you're doing. Um, and then once they're sort of happy that you've been trained as a trainer, um, they start to take a step back. Um, and we're now in a nice situation where we've got a number of staff that are trainers um, and we're running training sessions every day. Wow, great. So you've got the whole train the trainer model. Yeah, and that's been important, I think, particularly from um, the point of view of the surgeons because, you know, Rob has painted it as quite systematic how we chose people, but a lot of it came down to just who was available on the day. So we, um, um, for anaesthetists, we focused mainly on staff anaesthetists because they're the ones who... Uh, get rostered to our COVID theatre predominantly and and are available most of the time. We had a lot of enthusiasm among the anaesthetic department, so we didn't have any problems finding anaesthetists. The nursing staff, we asked the theatre managers to allocate us people uh, depending on their rostering and who was available on the day and their, and also who they thought you know would be suitable to be involved in the pilot project. But then when it came to the surgeons, as I'm sure you can imagine, it was a little bit trickier for them to make themselves available. You know, they're here, there and everywhere, not rostered to the hospital four days a week the way we are. So I think becoming opportunistic trainers in theatre rather than needing a formal half-day or all-day session with clean space to schedule the surgeons in, um, I think has become 
quite valuable. And we've, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Rob, but we've definitely trained more surgeons on an opportunistic basis in theatre than we ever did when we were running scheduled online sessions with the company. Yeah, absolutely. And we even had uh, a couple of days ago, you know, a surgeon who hadn't been trained um, and there was a COVID case that was booked for that theatre. And we were able to essentially train him up in the morning, um, run him through the accreditation process and then have him ready to go in the afternoon to be able to use the halo with everyone else in, in that theatre. So that sort of opportunistic training has definitely helped to catch particularly those surgeons that might not be there that often. How long did it take you to get to this point where you're now pretty much self-sufficient and can do that training, as you say, opportunistically and just in time? Um, Well, the whole project took us just over three weeks from um, conception to um, implementation and running our first case. Um, And then probably another week of running cases and further training with clean space before we were, I, I suppose, comfortable that we could allow the company to take a step back from that training model um, and start running things ourselves. Um, And we made sure that all the staff that were going to be trainers were comfortable individually before we said to the company, you know, I think we're ready to to go on our own. And we do still enlist their support. They've been very good. Um, If we have trouble, for example, we don't think we, we can quite get the right fit for example, we can't get the mask to fit with someone's glasses, etc. We the company, a couple of the trainers in particular, we we feel like we have a good relationship with, and we just you know send them a text, and they can um, help us out on Zoom usually within a day or two. At the moment, how many trainers do you have within the theatre complex? We've got five people that are training on a regular basis, um, and we're hoping to get a few extra people trained up in the future. You know, I do a lot of projects in developing countries and this is what we're often looking for. You're looking for that initial training, training up enough trainers and the key word is sustainability. We haven't yet trained up our own trainers. It's it's something that we're thinking about. We, we wanted to make sure that every, all our processes were fully embedded and then train enough people that we did have a full complement of staff available each day to be in that theatre. And then the next steps are how do we I suppose from Chris and I's perspective as the ones who have done a lot of the legwork, how do we take a step back and allow the project to essentially run on its own with us just overseeing everything rather than being intimately involved in all the different aspects? Definitely heading towards future sustainability. In the long run, do you think you'll have everyone in the theatre complex trained in how to use a clean space halo? Is that the goal? We sort of discussed a little bit where we're going to stop because it, it becomes quite tricky when you when you factor in everyone that could potentially be in that theatre environment and, and how many staff are involved. You know, just as an example, if you have an obstetric case, you've got to now consider midwives and paediatricians or if you have a case where you, you have radiographers, all of a sudden the, the number of staff that you're looking at starts to balloon out quite quickly. We've focused quite specifically in theatre I think the model will allow for us to train staff up on the day that they need to use the halo to be ready. And we, we've basically said, you know, if people are interested in being trained, then we're happy to train. How long does a training session take? It sounds like you can train people up in half a day or less. Yeah, we, we have a three-step training process. The first stage involves people sort of logging in online to um, e-module, which we've created and designed. 
there's some training videos, some of which have come from Clean Space, some of which we've filmed and put out there ourselves. And we ask everyone to read through, in particular, the safety um, components of the device. So, you know, donning, doffing, device check, failure protocols, um, which are part of our clinical practice guideline. And then there's a quiz which takes a variable amount of time, or around half an hour. The second component is a training session. It's variable how long that takes. If it's a one-on-one session, it can be quite quick, as we discovered a couple of days ago when we just had the one surgeon to train, um, you know, 20 minutes or less. Um, we've been training three or four people at a time. Um, so one of those sessions with a small group takes about an hour. And then after the session, we give people a chance if they want to continue practicing mm-hmm. the device to do so. And then the third component of the training is a sort of formal credentialing system where we bring them back at some stage before they use the device um, in a real case. And we ask them just to show us that they can do a device check um, and safely don and then safely doff the device and PPE. So I suppose all up, you know, two two hours-ish um, per user, you know, including the, the quiz and everything else. Sounds like a great training program. So there's a, some online pre-reading, a quiz, a face-to-face demonstration, and then an actual demonstration of competency. Is, is that the summary of the training package? Yeah, that is the summary, Susie. I think it's worth making it clear that our training process is pretty thorough. Clean space, if you're an initial user, you just need 45 minutes online with clean space for them to issue a certificate. But I guess given the context we were working in and, you know, staff anxieties, et cetera, the main purpose from my perspective for a three-stage training program with an online component was just to give people as many chances as possible to just to put it on and take it off, put it on and take it off. When we were doing the initial 45-minute user training with clean space, we'd then give everyone another 45 minutes just to put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off and, and run them through our actual COVID theatre, PPE, donning and doffing protocols and where to collect the device and, and things like that. And I think especially initially that was really, really helpful. But like Rob says, as the project's gone on and we've got more comfortable ourselves and everyone's got more comfortable seeing the halos around and the other supervisors have got more comfortable, the process has condensed a little bit and that final accreditation step you can get that done in in 10 or 15 minutes as long as you've got you know the the equipment all set up and laid out the ppe and the flow charts and the and the halo components as well as as with a lot of processes it's it's evolved naturally and it's become more efficient but on paper it looks like a fairly arduous half day worth of training but it's become more efficient as time's gone on I think everyone has realized as we wear more and more PPE, we do get more efficient at it. I remember the first time I had to don airborne PPE for a COVID patient and uh, it felt like it took ages because I wanted it all to be absolutely rock solid. And then now we can put it on almost in our sleep, not quite because we need PPE spotters and buddies and all that sort of stuff. But we do get more efficient at it. Totally agree with that. You're right. The same goes even just I've found just for doffing the the halo itself, like the first time you put it on, you don't know how to take it off. The second time you worry about following the very specific steps. And we found that a lot of people who are wearing it for the first or second time have much preferred the doffing buddy to undo the clip for them because the clip can be quite stiff and it might reduce the chances of setting off the blower a bit. But as people have worn it more and more, more people are getting much more efficient at taking it off and taking it off by themselves, undoing that clip themselves as well. That's the key component of any skills acquisition, isn't it? That it's repetition that is key. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The whole process that we had was to try to get people practiced and comfortable with the devices. As you say, when you first put you know a new bit of PPE on, you're much more conscientious of, of how you've gone and how you doff and how you wear the device. And, and the tendency for people to have is to wear the device quite tightly like an N95 mask, even though it provides protection because of the nature of being a positive pressure device when it's sort of more loosely on your face. Um, and even I personally found that the first time I wore it was much more uncomfortable than when I'm wearing it now because I've gotten much much more practice in and I've, I've gotten really used to the device. So that sort of practical component of, of our training program was designed specifically with trying to get as many people as comfortable as quickly with the device as we could. Sounds like a great training program. And I believe you're going to be writing this up for Australian Anistas for the December edition. Is that right? Yes, I'm starting to work on that and that article sort of describing some of our processes. I'm looking forward to reading it. You you may not have a sense of it yet, but I I talked to Lachlan and he was talking about needing to train staff again every two weeks to do a refresher. Are you finding that you need to do that as well, that people might uh, forget some of their muscle memory? I suppose in particular, the the issue with the clean space device is um, surrounding doffing in particular. The, the actual donning and device check component, we're finding that people are very comfortable with, um, even on repeat uses. And we, we've got an evaluation form that we give to everyone who goes in for the first time. And then when they go in, um, you know, after they've used it more than once, but we comment that does get easier the second, third, fourth time round. But the changes in things like, you know, comfort levels with device check and donning um, remain consistent. We're seeing changes in particular is around comfort during the case and wearing a device. Um, so as in user comfort, not, not comfort with the device familiarity um, and also with doffing. Um, so that, that's the sort of the two main um, areas that we're seeing changes in. And I think because we've got the device check and donning quite protocolized and we're using a donning buddy and the donning buddy at the moment, because we're using the device in daylight hours only, we haven't yet moved to using it after hours, um, is a super user who's very comfortable with the device. So we haven't found that particular aspect of it to be an issue. We've process mapped you know, what's been happening from when the users collect the device to when they doff. And we've had excellent results with doffing buddies helping out with doffing. I'm a big fan of PPE buddies for donning and doffing. I've been advocating for them at all levels and I'm glad to see the Department of Health has included them. I'd love to see them being implemented more. Talking about the evaluation, how have you found the staff reception to these? What are, what are people's views on the clean space? Staff perception has been excellent. We've, we've had an excellent response. So our overall evaluation uses the Likert scale to evaluate the responses to various components. We've looked at device check, donning, device comfort, communication. Um, would you prefer to use these over an N95? There's 6% of staff that are neutral. They're on the fence about whether they want the Halo or an N95. That tends to be surgeons. Um, I think some of them have just found it a bit difficult with loops and other bits and pieces. Um, but we've had 91% of people say that they prefer the Halo to an N95. And a vast majority of people find them more comfortable to use and they feel safer and more protected in them. Just say you had a, a COVID or a SCOVID patient coming to theatre and you had, say, a surgeon who would prefer to use it in 95, would you allow that to happen or would you say that everyone in that theatre needs to be in a clean space? 
No, our system allows for people to choose. We we don't. We're certainly not forcing anyone to use a device that they don't feel comfortable with or they don't want to use. Our um, department heads have basically stated that they want everyone in a theatre environment to either be fit tested in an N95 mask or have a clean space halo. Um, so essentially trying to protect everyone to the best of our ability. So they're really our criteria for being in that environment. And hallelujah for having that as the minimum standard. Well done to your department heads. The big question I keep being asked is cleaning. What do you guys do for cleaning the clean space? I just wanted to add to what Rob said about the comfort and the surgeons. I think that's a significant consideration for people that are trying to become trainers and roll out this sort of thing in your COVID theatre because definitely in our space, we use a uh, disposable face shield over the top of whatever mask you're wearing in our COVID theatre, as I'm sure pretty much everywhere does these days. And the halo is ergonomic enough that it, it fits under the face shield with no troubles and keeping in mind that we're also wearing a surgical mask over the top of the halo as well because the exhalation valve is not filtered. And the surgeons in particular, most of them aren't that keen to be operating in disposable face shields. Um, are they either worried that it will touch the chest of their gown and contaminate their sterile operating setup that they're wearing or doesn't work with, like Rob said, with their glasses? And so most of them are just wanting to wear um, a surgical mask with the attached face shield component or they're just wanting to wear their operating glasses that they would normally wear. And most glasses, as long as the mask is not too high up on the bridge of the nose and the glasses are fairly low profile, we've definitely had some issues uh, with some types of loops that might be a bit more bulky um, or that won't sit properly just behind the surgical mask. So that, that's something we've been able to find an arrangement of the mask and the glasses that's made it workable for the surgeons that have been enthusiastic to participate in the program. But it is something to keep in mind. From a cleaning point of view, to answer your question, we have an amazing head of CSSD who has been on board right from the start. I think she was very appreciative that we dialed her into the process right from the beginning, well before we even received the devices. And she has worked with us and the and the company to come up with a process that, as far as we know, is you know significantly more thorough than any other process out there, particularly in terms of sterilizing the power unit the the four components of the device the mask the harness the neck support that clicks into the power unit and then the power unit itself are able to be processed slightly differently the non-power unit components are all validated to go through an auto washer also you can sterilize them as well so right from the start as recommended by the company we set out to put the masks through an auto washer uh, and then um, also through uh, the sterilizing machine. The sterilizing machine we have is the Sterad. Uh, I think it's the 100S. And most of those components are validated to go, go through that. We did have a problem with the neck supports. Our auto washer was just slightly too hot uh, and it was warping them slightly. So we don't put them through the auto washer anymore. We just wipe them down. But they're not a component that comes into contact with the staff, the back of the staff member's neck, but not not their face. So we focused mainly on the the mask and the exhalation valve assembly as components that were requiring a very high level of sterilization. They get washed, they get sterilized, and then they get put into um, a clean dust cover. 
this was important that it looks like it's sterile. There was a problem where the, the steri peel actually sticks to the silicon of the mask. So that wasn't possible. So now they come out of the Sterad machine sterile and they get handled by a clean CSSD staff who puts them into a clean dust cover. The power unit was a whole other story. The power unit uh, is recommended by the company just to be wiped down and disinfected and placed back on charge. And that uh, was something that was raised as a potential issue during our program in the context of a staff outbreak of COVID-19. So we made some inquiries about going to the next level of sterilizing power unit. And it turns out the power unit is a validated to be sterilized in a machine called Steris, which we have at our institution, but is, it's not easily available in our CSSD department. The hypothetical risk is that a, a contaminated staff member, you know, breathing back into the device or on back onto the clean side of the filter. If the device is in the on mode, then I, I think the company's data is that this is very unlikely and that there's only one way airflow. But given the context that we were rolling the devices out in, we were keen from a CSSD and an infection prevention control point of view to be able to sterilise the power unit if we could. Some really good points there. I think the, the key one there is to get CSSD involved early because they're going to be involved with this process. And I, I really like hearing that the company is still working on how to sterilise these different units in different ways um, with various different machines because I, I suspect that hospitals all around Australia will have very different sterilization equipment. Rob, you were saying that you've got your own clean space unit. So do you have a slightly different cleaning protocol because the risk of cross-contamination isn't there? Oh yeah, no, I, I bought one for use when I do private lists. Um, I do um, quite a bit of ENT um, sinus work as well. So I sort of wanted it available for those and obviously, I don't have access to sterads, hydrogen peroxide, vaporizers anywhere at home. Um, I have been in talks with the company and with others about the best way to sterilize for individuals. And um, we're, we're thinking about ways of writing up some guidance for individual users, users as well. Um, but essentially, because I'm not sharing the device with anyone else, the necessity to sterilize the power unit isn't there the concern with the power unit is that you have a staff member that's asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic that potentially contaminates the power unit. Um, so for my power unit, uh, essentially I've got a clear plastic tub that I can doff dirty components into. Um, and then wearing PPE, I can actually wipe down the power unit with 70% um, alcohol wipes, including the, the neck support. Um, and then for the, the units that could potentially, or the unit components that could potentially be contaminated, which um, is the mask and in particular the outside of the mask and the exhalation valve alcohol, um, and then hang them up to dry. So the, the process itself is not that arduous. It, you know, it takes me 10, 15 minutes um, at the end of the day each time. There, there are talks, again, with the company about what can private hospitals potentially do to make things easier um, and I think if there's a separate area for doffing and cleaning that might be available for staff, that would be one thing that would be quite useful of a process. You made me think a couple of things there. When you made a good point about wearing the clean space unit that you're still wearing either a surgical mask or a face shield over the top. And that's one thing I've heard is that you're meant to wear a hood over them in order to protect the unit from getting contaminated. Have you thought that that's not required because you're going to go through a very diligent cleaning process? 
The reason we have a surgical mask over the top is is not um, for contamination reasons. It's because the exhalation valve doesn't actually contain any filtration on it. So there is an aftermarket filter that you can attach to it, which whenever we train um, scrub and surgical staff in particular, we offer that as an option for them. We say we can get these filters if you would like to wear them. The problem is it's not a very low profile filter. The reason that we think that's sufficient in the COVID theatre environment is that everyone's wearing um, either a fitted N95 or a clean space halo already. So it's not like you're going to be catching COVID from other staff members. Um, And when you go and doff with your PPE doffing buddy, your buddy is wearing full PPE as well. So everyone's protected from each other, but we, we needed a way to protect the patient's wound site from infection. Um, that's why we wear the surgical mask over the top. If the, the device, you know, um, does happen to get contaminated, we have a couple of protocols. So if, if it's gross contamination with, you know, large amounts of blood, for example, you know, we've got these cleaning plugs that we can put in and then uh, the doffing buddy can just give it a wipe down before sending it to CSSD. Otherwise, it goes straight in, you know, where you doff the device straight into a tub, um, which is then sealed, and CSSD are then able to um, fully clean, decontaminate and sterilise all the components. Um, there was um, a disposable sleeve option as well that you can have the um, power <coughs> unit sitting in. Um, that one is sort of designed to protect the power unit specifically from growth contamination, um, which we thought was unlikely to happen. Um, and we we wanted to keep the doffing process as simple as possible. And because we're sterilising the units anyway, um, we thought that having that sleeve um, was just another component that added a bit of complexity, not much, but a little bit of complexity um, to the doffing process. You know, I, I suppose it does um, potentially help to reduce viral load um, on the power unit, but again, we're doffing the whole thing straight into a tub and, and going off to be sterilised. So we didn't feel that that was a big concern. So it's a good principle, especially when it comes to doffing, is to keep it simple. It's an interesting comment, and it's not just that it applies to clean space halos, but I've heard it being asked before of all the reusable respirators about this exhalation valve issue and people wanting to wear surgical masks over the top. But it's it's interesting that in the past pre-COVID, we've just worn surgical masks. There was probably a lot of exhaled air that was leaking that we never tried to contain previously. So we're we're adding, I think, uh, a really high level of protection for patients by considering this now, which we've never considered before. Yeah, I agree. And I, I can understand that there's a lot of concerns about um, COVID spread and people being asymptomatic um, spreaders. That was one concern that people mentioned right off the bat is how are you going to deal with a staff member that might be asymptomatic and you've got them in the halo, but the exhalation is not filtered. Um, so as I mentioned before, you know, everyone who's wearing the devices are um, you know, all in the same room wearing devices that are keeping them safe. So that was one, one consideration. Um, but then as you say, the, the whole you know, how we're protecting patients from our airflow, we actually think that we're basically protecting them in the same manner that we were pre-COVID. It's just that you've got that extra mask underneath your surgical mask that's, um, you know, 
helping to protect you. Um, when, when we were training users, especially in the first instance, because of what was happening at our institution, everyone had, had to have two negative swabs um, as part of the process of being allowed to work. Um, so we felt comfortable in our training process where everyone was taking the units on and off um, and, you know, potentially had the situation where someone was wearing the halo without a surgical mask over the top, providing an infiltration, um, and then someone else was doffing and practising, you know, all in the same room. Um, but in that that instance, as I say, everyone had had two negative swabs separated by a few days so to um, mitigate any risks of um, staff infections. Wow, really high level of staff protection there. Good on you. Well done. Before I asked you if there's any other points you wanted to make, I just wanted to ask, you shared with me some really good resources there. Chris and I, when we sat down to get all our protocols and videos and everything up and running, we specifically had a chat about how we're going to do this so that it can be widely adopted, not just um, so that it can be adopted by our institution, but how can we create something that um, any hospital can pick up and use as a base for then rolling it out themselves. Part of what we've done in terms of, you know, cleaning protocols, donning, doffing, um, you know, device troubleshooting, all that sort of stuff is to keep it as simple as possible so that you can, you know, roll it out to all end users and they don't have to worry about some of the complexities surrounding those issues. Um, and then how do you also sterilise and clean these devices so that any infection control um, unit can pick it up and say that's actually a high enough level of cleaning and disinfection that we can use it. That's great. It's a tremendous amount of work that you guys have done and it's also really generous to share it more widely and I think if it saves anyone out there a little bit of work or a lot of work, that's really good and it's also really, I think, important uh, thing to be doing to be supporting each other because we're all we're all learning about all of this at the moment and some like yourself faster than others. Oh, we're all in this together, aren't we? Actually, you did you did ask at the start how did we get it out so quickly, and I, I don't think we specifically answered that part. But it was actually much time to it was because we did have the issues surrounding the outbreak in our hospital, which meant that we were doing a lot less operating. And so Chris and I were able to be pulled off clinical duties. It certainly took a lot of work after hours as well to finish writing protocols and submissions to various committees and that sort of thing. Um, I think Chris and I were texting each other past midnight quite a couple of nights and, you know, we made the joke that we're seeing each other more than our wives at the moment. But that period of time where we did have uh, a lull in elective work in particular and, and theatre work, um, really allowed us to focus and dedicate all of our time to this project. I would suspect that, you know, units or departments that are trying to roll it out on as large a scale as we did um, might need to take a little bit longer than the three weeks sort of time frame that we, we had um, or, or try to find a way to free up a few people to, you know, focus on things like device familiarity and training processes. I absolutely do not underestimate the amount of work that's gone into this. There's, there's not just the the processes and the guidelines that need to be mapped out, but there's a lot of engagement 
that you need to undertake at your hospital with, as you mentioned, CSSD, the nurses, the surgeons, to try and get these things up and running. So I think a big credit to both of you for doing it, as I said, breaking the land speed record in order to get it done. And I also think big kudos to both of you for generously wanting to share it with uh, by the sounds of it, not just anaesthetists, but anyone out there who's also having to go through this same learning process. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that uh, I haven't asked you about, that I haven't covered about the clean space and about getting it up and going in your hospital? Yes, Susie, I, I just wanted to re-emphasise the point about the key people to be involved. I think, yeah, obviously, CSFB, um, right from the start, it was really important that we got them involved. But also, it's probably the nursing staff. We, we've got a couple of amazing educators and also theatre anums, and two or three of those in particular have almost taken over the process now of getting buy-in from the nursing staff and making the nursing staff um, feel comfortable and and taking over most of the training and coordinating the availability of the nursing staff and then their actual training as well. So you know, I don't think it would have happened without the particular help of those groups of people, those nursing staff and also the CSSD staff. I think that's really important, finding the right people to buy in and help you supervise the project right from the start. Yeah, definitely. What I'd call them is champions whenever you're trying to implement something you're always trying to find the champions who are going to help you get it off the ground and it it sounds like you've got some great champions as well as a really good team in your hospital so I think congratulations to all the team there if you didn't have anything else to add I just wanted to to thank you for your time this morning thanks for putting up with the IG glitches oh I was just I know I know you were interested in seeing the unit so I did bring the unit along just for you to have have a quick look thank you it's a good photo in your CPG. I like I like that. That's very clear, clear diagram. Yeah, yeah, the diagrams. Uh, I think those ones are from the company. So I think the company's done a really good job in keeping it lightweight and quite ergonomic. Um, but yeah, that's I brought that along for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both of you. Thanks for doing, as I said, tremendous job. Thanks for your time this morning. Lovely meeting you. Hopefully next time I meet you, we're talking face to face and we're not being interrupted by Zoom dropouts. <laughs> be good that would be good thanks Susie thanks Susie well I hope there were some things in there that you found useful especially if you are looking to implement the clean space halo in your workplace just remember that's how Rob and Chris implemented things in their hospital from what I understand they went above and beyond in terms of having every component of the unit sterilized I'm sure it's going to be different in other hospitals. If you have any feedback or if you've done things differently, do let us know. Either drop me a line via the ASA email or if you're an ASA member, why don't you share your guidelines with us on the ASA forum so that we can hopefully just help anyone else out there who's in the same boat. Rob has also very generously agreed to share his training videos. So if you're interested, please email us asa at asa.org.au and we can put your request through to Rob. One good reason to watch those videos is that there is a really good example of what I think a PPE buddy should do, especially when helping someone doff. Some of you who are interested in the Clean Space Halo will know that you're unable to purchase one as an individual. Well, have I got news for you. 
the ASA and CleanSpace have just made arrangements for ASA members to purchase a CleanSpace Halo unit. Now, you can't just purchase it and be done with it. We are looking for 20 people to pilot this initiative. People who are going to buy the unit, do the training, be credentialed, and then also help develop the single user cleaning protocol. The aim is that we'll be able to launch this for all members in the future. So if you are an ASA member and you would like to be involved, please do email us, asa at asa.org.au is the email that you need to use. Okay, stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>